0: Better way to do this Let me show you a better way.
1: Hi folks. this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival podcast. as always one man's view of the changing world. The changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 7th, 2017, and this is episode 2038 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it's an expert council show, and I've got a really diverse one for you today. Here's what I've got today. We're going to talk about the concept of loans using Bitcoin, specifically anonymous loans, but also just how credit might work and how people might actually be able to loan and expect repayment if you were doing business in Bitcoin from a credit standpoint between individuals or companies or who knows. Um, we also have a question I thought was kind of unique and different for Michael Jordan. How might a total eclipse affect your bees? My thought's not probably that big of a deal, but let's see what the bee whisperer Michael Jordan has to say about that. In regards to someone that will be smack dab in the middle of a coming eclipse and has quite a bit of bees. Um, I have a question for Darby Simpson on dealing with watering your padded cattle. And a really cool answer to that. Simple one, really. Uh, what if you had rabbits and they were too hot so you wanted to use the sun to cool them down? Solar-powered rabbit cooling uh, the Rabbit Swamp Cooler, something like that. Can it be done? Stephen Harris will talk all about it and tell us if we can make a lightsaber to cool down our rabbits. Just kidding, of course. Storing fats the right way for from Erica for Strauss and uh, powering up your marketing with WordPress from Nicole Sauce and making lobster sauce with Chef Keith Snower is that mobster sauce. We'll see when we get there. And uh, then you got me at the end. I'm going to be playing a segment for you off of YouTube on an app called Fresco. It is for news media what Ubers is for cab drivers. And the news media doesn't really, I think, understand yet what's going on. Um, I mean, honestly, I'm going to tell you, watching CNN over the last few weeks is like watching someone that desperately deserves to die. Attempt to commit suicide with a hammer, even if they don't succeed, it's damned entertaining. Um, but that's neither high nor hair to what we're actually going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what my buddy Vin Armani calls crypto savagery. What's going on here? Because it's it's the iceberg tip that everybody's looking at and going, oh yeah, see that's interesting, and that does have an effect and. But, but with crypto savagery what you don't see is that the, the majority of the iceberg is under the water. It's under the water. If that doesn't make sense it will when we get to that end segment. Before we do and get into all of this stuff for the expert council day, let's go ahead and take a look at this year from history. The year from history this year is the year twenty one. We are up to the year twenty one AD. I have two today, one from South Paul Bennett and one from David Verne. I have Tiberius has his fourth consularship. This year, Tiberius will be elected consul for the fourth term. At the end of this year, he begins to tire of politics and will begin making his way out of the political arena. My take myself, Bob Ben, Tiberius seems to some historians to never really have been interested in ruling, at least not with a tight grip on the reins of power. He often gave vague orders and wished for the Senate to make decisions for itself, not just rely on his decree for everything. As a result of this, he said the Senate consisted of men fit to be slaves, The sentiment still rings true today when one looks at modern Congress and how they count out every lobbyist with a dollar to his name. It's interesting, you know. When we look at the Senate in particular out of our Congress, I don't think most Americans are even aware today that what we have is based on a constitutional amendment that happened the same year that we got the income tax on the Federal Reserve, by the way. Just saying that kind of all lines up kind of suspicious as taking power away from the people. Senators in 1913 were sent to D.C. by state legislature. They were appointed for a six-year term, which is great, because then they could actually do what they should do and not worry about being reelected because they didn't go back to their states to get elected by the people. Their state legislature decided whether they stayed there or not. State legislature also had the ability to recall and replace them. That was quite interesting. So you had a more secure Senate seat, but you also could have your ass handed to you really quick if you didn't look after the needs of your state. It was really one of the last vestiges of strong states' rights at the federal level. And of course, in 1913, we took that away, which of course consolidated power to the central authority and made senators kowtow to the lobbyists. The more things change, the more they say the same. So let's look at Search and Destroy, contributed by David Verne for the year 21. This year, governors of the, this year's governor of Africa is Junius Belasus. He's an experienced veteran and an uncle of Serginius, Tiberius' advisor and commander in the Petronian Guard. As soon as he arrives, Tacfarius sends envoys to Rome, demanding large amounts of land and money from Tiberius and threatening to continue an eternal war. Tiberius rejects these and tells Belasus to offer pardons to any rebels who lay down arms but Tacfarnius will be captured or killed. Blasius prepares three divisions under command of himself, his son, and Cornelius Scipio, Uh, a general sent from Rome. Blasius marched south through the middle of the province while his son and Scipio guarded, surrounded the east and west flanks, cutting off any means of escape. They rendezvous in what is now southern Tunisia, they set up force and began sending out units to search and destroy missions. Tarcfarnius was soon cut off from his forces, scattering to save themselves. The Romans returned with many prisoners, but Tacfarnius managed to escape again. Tacfarnius saw this is good enough and awarded Blasius triumphal decorations. There's a lot of that going around at the time, huh? My take by David Verne. While the Romans had more success this year, the result was pretty much the same. Tacfarnius escaped and will return with an army next year. I think one issue that was a constant changing of command, Africa was a senatorial province and it had a one or two year term limit for governor. I provided a link below in case anyone's curious about Roman provinces. So you didn't leave anybody there long enough to get the job done. You think about term limit debate and uh, today's world and we need people there long enough to get something done but not so long that it becomes a profession for them. I think that's a balance, and I think here the balance was tipped in the wrong direction. It is interesting to note that exactly what I said should have been done um, previously, when they went after Tech Farnius and just went after him one direction and he gets away, uh, was done this time. So is that because I knew what was going to happen? No, I I know very little of history of this time of the world. That's why I love this segment. I get to learn from it. But um, he still gets away. I think what this shows is, again, the difference one man can make. I mean, why weren't there 10 Farniuses? Why weren't there like these legions all around going around? Um, why was this guy so charismatic, so capable, and, and capable of coming back over and over again? Now, the reality might be that even when you get good old Farnius and you know nail his hide to a tree or something like that, it, the problem might not go away. When there's a good command structure, even though there's that top commander, there's somebody that's there to take their place. Does that happen with Farnius? Do they get him? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. This is kind of like ancient soap opera from history, right? With this all this uh, drama in the in the world of Rome, um, but it also does show that sometimes it is one man. And again, I, I think sports shows us like a modern analog to combat. I remember football games where you know a quarterback was out out of the game for an injury, but they could still play. But the backup was better suited. And they put the backup in, and even though he was in, he was actually better capable with the other individual's injury, he didn't have that command field generalship. His players didn't really believe in him like they. Believed, and they put the other guy back in, even though he was you know gimpy and limpy and whatever. Turn around and win the game. Come back, even though he wasn't at a hundred percent, because the man himself makes the difference. There are rare people like that in the world that individually can make a difference. And it is best that such people, you know, are on the side of right. Unfortunately, many times they actually end up on the side of oppression and tyranny. And uh, it takes a lot to unseat them. Where was that with Tacfarinas? I don't really know, because the Romans were an empire, and I'm not exactly fond of empire building. But this guy seems like a hit and run crook to me. Sometimes both sides are bad guys. And I guess once again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's go ahead and get into your questions for the expert council today. Lead off question for our cryptocurrency expert, Brandon Todd on loaning people Bitcoin, loaning, loaning money with Bitcoin and doing so anonymously. Brandon, with that, take it away.
2: Hello, everybody. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com, here to answer a question for the expert council. This question comes in from Myseek, where Myseek asks, In essence, my question is as follows. Is it possible to make an anonymous loan in Bitcoin? And if not, then how is Bitcoin any different than the banking system we have now? So a little bit of background. Um, I think Myseek was wondering about, um, you know, Bitcoin is seen as an anonymous currency, and I think what they're asking is, you know, is it going to struggle with the concept of credit? And without credit and trust, they argue that you really can't have a functioning currency. So let's see if I can speak to those two questions. Is, is it possible to make an anonymous loan in Bitcoin? And if not, then how would Bitcoin be any different than the banking system we have now? So, okay, those are great questions. Let's put aside for a minute that Bitcoin is not completely anonymous, but rather pseudo-anonymous by default, with the fact that it has a completely transparent digital ledger known as the blockchain. Of course, Bitcoin can be completely anonymous if you take some additional steps to carefully obscure your identity. I only bring this up because this is a popular misconception about Bitcoin, and I would argue that physical cash, like the US dollar, is far more anonymous than a standard Bitcoin transaction. Now, to answer your question, your first question of, is it possible to make an anonymous loan with Bitcoin? So, I don't know of any anonymous lender-borrower loan services in the Bitcoin space that don't use some sort of third-party custodial collateralized or escrow service protection for the most part. There are, however, some that claim to be a loan matchmaker service using reputation rating systems. The two that I'm thinking of are bitbond.com and btcpop.co. Now, I have never used either of these and do not endorse them in any way, but here are two examples of loan services in the Bitcoin space that I have heard of and seem to have decent ratings. As amazing as the invention of Bitcoin is, I do not believe that it solves the problem of requiring trust or confidence for lenders in the loan uh, situation strictly peer-to-peer speaking. Now, I do not know that with. No, I'm sorry. Now, I do know that with Bitcoin, there are such things as multi sig transactions where multiple people can hold parts of keys to ensure nobody runs off with the money, and that with Ethereum. There are smart contracts that can execute without any human interaction. So maybe there is, or one day will be, some sort of anonymous service. But I do not know of any right now where you can prove some sort of collateral to be eligible to borrow and still somehow be completely anonymous to any other party. Another way to think about all this would be that it seems pretty clear that, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, the inventor of Bitcoin, never intended Bitcoin to be a credit-based banking system. Uh, The first words on the Bitcoin white paper read, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. And this is exactly what Bitcoin is. It's a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't lend and borrow Bitcoin like any other currency, if you so wish. Hold on a second. And again, this would most likely be facilitated by third parties willing to take the risk for a fee, which, like I mentioned, is already available today. But just like with cash money, you don't do anonymous loans with strangers because of counterparty risk. With both U.S. dollar and Bitcoin, you would use a trusted third party. So this brings me to your second question, which is, how how is Bitcoin any different than the banks we have today? Well, because Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer electronic cash system that is decentralized, I can send Bitcoin to anyone who has a Bitcoin public address without discrimination. A perfect example of what I am getting at is the fact that, from time to time, I like to send little bits of Bitcoin to Julian Assange and Edward Snowden to show my thanks for the good work I feel they have done. Now, regardless of how you feel about these two men, the fact is, I have a choice to send them money today, wherewith the traditional fiat banking systems I do not. You see, with traditional fiat banking rails, I do not have that choice. They can discriminate against me and or them. They can seize or shut down or suspend our accounts. This is the biggest difference between the rails or pipelines at which the two different currencies like the U.S. dollar and Bitcoin travel on. This might be a little off topic about the specific loan question you had, but I feel it is the most important difference between these two worlds. Having said all of that, I still don't see why we can't have both options using Bitcoin. The biggest thing is that today I have a choice of who, when, and where I want to transact with as I see fit. This, I believe, is the first killer app of this new decentralized world we see taking shape. Now, on the other hand, if I so choose to participate in some sort of borrowing agreement, then I can do that as well, as I don't see the credit loan-based system going away anytime soon. There will always be a need for lending and borrowing, and there will always be entities that, that will be willing to take that risk for a fee. Let the free market work it out, and let competition ensue to benefit us all. So... I hope that answers your question, Uh, and again, this is Brandon from Cryptoskim.com, wishing you all a happy day.
1: So as as we look forward and we think of cryptocurrency as a a new wave of the way society will do business, and I believe that it is, it doesn't necessarily mean the death of fiat currency, or it doesn't necessarily mean the death of an inflationary currency. One of the actual limitations I think we need to understand with a currency like Bitcoin um, is If you have a currency that is deflationary, in other words, it becomes stronger over time, lending becomes a lot more expensive for the borrower. Because if I borrow a Bitcoin today and it buys $2,600 worth of stuff, and I have to pay you 1.1 Bitcoins back over the next year, but by the end of that year when I'm making repayment... um, Let's say now that that 1.1, that one one Bitcoin that I initialed, that principal that I borrowed, uh, now buys $5,000 worth of goods. It's a lot harder for me to get a Bitcoin to pay you back with, plus I need a little bit more. So, you know, conversely, if and we're we're crushing the timelines down here, but conversely, if I borrow a Bitcoin and it is worth $2,600 worth of stuff, and a year later it's worth... $1,300, Thirteen hundred dollars. It costs me less money to pay you back than I actually borrowed, and you know, hopefully for you, the interest rate reflects that. That's why we have these crazy interest rates at times that go really, really high because they're attempting to spur on inflation. Because what we have is a de- deflation. It's it, it's a it's a weird thing, but you can look at the '70s if you want to learn more about deflation, stagflation, inflation, and a big mess that comes from that. So. The, the question to me really is, you know, anonymous, if you want to do anonymous right now, there's better cryptocurrencies to do it in. However, if, if you and I both set up a Jax wallet and you loan me money from your Jax wallet and I pay you back, um, Jax has no personal information on us. Now, the original Bitcoin would have to come from somewhere, but it would be pretty hard to track down. But, you know, we did coin mixing through Dash or something like that. It might be a better currency for that. But the, the, the issue with deflation and inflation What I think it leaves the potential for is some sort of inflationary cryptocurrency that's moderately inflationary. However, I think long-term the problem solves itself. I think that if we look at what Bitcoin was supposed to do, it's done exactly what it was supposed to do, and unless something earth-shattering shifts that, it will continue to do what it was supposed to do, which is the following. And if you look at the history of Bitcoin, you will see exactly this. The Bitcoin, when it would come on the scene, would be dramatically inflationary because it would be very easy to mine, and lots of it would come out, and not many people would see value in it. It would go through a massive inflationary curve. It then would begin a deflationary curve, which actually would be a perceived increase in value. That increase in value and that perceived increase in value would be highly volatile, and it would then go back through an inflationary curve as people liquidated it because, hey, I can take profits and it would become very unstable but find a floor. This is exactly what the people behind Bitcoin that were part of the early movement said Bitcoin would do. I'm telling you the exact story, right? Then, then, then further along as Bitcoin matured and became more accepted and became more stable, it would go over a long um, deflationary curve becoming worth more and more in value as a scarce asset. It would continue to experience volatility, but would have a sustained long-term deflationary curve. And at some point in the future, as it's adopted and it reaches the, the limits of its adoption, would become a very stable, yet still deflationary currency that would continue to grow in value over time by far less than it will during its midterm. That's that's the long term plan. Now, how long is that? Where exactly we are we in it? You know, it looks like we might even be there, you know toward the end of that, or it could be a hundred years away. I don't know. But that's that's what it's done. It's exactly what they said it would do eight years ago. It's exactly what it's done. So at some point, if it does become the de facto private global currency, it is probably the case that it will become much more suited to, towards loans, because right now. If I borrowed money from you in Bitcoin, I would insist that it be paid back based on a, a U.S. dollar metric. Which means you could be getting more or less Bitcoin back, but you would have an appreciation in your dollars. And I think that's how most people would do credit in Bitcoin at this time. So you might loan me .75 Bitcoin, and that might be worth, oh, I don't know, off the top of my head, $2,100. I don't know what it is today, but say $1,900. $1,900. And uh, the total repayment value would be $2,100. Well, if Bitcoin goes way up, you're getting a lot less Bitcoin. If it goes way down, you're getting a lot more Bitcoin. But in the end, you're getting the, you know, I borrowed $1,900. Your total repayment is going to be $21. That's how it's going to work. That's how I would do it for now. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the next one. This is from Michael Jordan on Bees and Eclipses. Quick little note here. When Michael sent me this uh, recording, it had a horrible hum in it, like, like this loud, like, all the way in the back of it. Using a filter in a program called Audacity, I stripped it out. It is much easier to listen to now, but it still has kind of a echoey, sounds like it was recorded in a hard-floored room sound to it. I'm sorry for that, but this is the best I could do, cleaning it up. And I'll talk to Mike about uh, dealing with that background feed record noise that he had there in the future.
0: Well, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of mead. My question is, Michael, how does the total eclipse affect the bees out foraging? I've been researching the upcoming total solar eclipse coming up on August 21st. The dead center of its path is just miles from our city of Milford, of Milfreesboro, Tennessee. And it will, will last from about one minute to about two minutes and a half if you are a dead center in its path. The research suggests that some effects are temperature dropping, among other things, and the animal kingdom freaking out. It's got me thinking about my bees. Since bees use the sun as their guidance system, what happens to the bees caught out with good ways of foraging? And then they're all zapped with a two and a half minutes of darkness right in the middle of the day. Uh, the August 21st eclipse happens around 1.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. Do they get lost? Do they fly in the dark? Do they come back but miss their landing by several feet? Since they do the waggle dance to communicate directions to find food, etc., And the dance changes by the sun moves, movements, which is a degree every four minutes. It would seem to give them a bit of a hiccup. What say you, Michael? Now that's how you ask a question. Man, you're getting into how I think about bees now. And I have too wondered about the same thing. So I'm going to give you some info on what I found on my studies and some stuff that I've recently looked up on it. Uh, on the beasts and the power of the sun. Now, I too am right under the path of the total solar eclipse coming up on the 21st of August at latitude 42 degrees, 30 feet, 10 inches north, longitude 105 degrees, 1 foot, 34 inches west. So my retreat is only a uh, jump from the location uh, of that location where we plan on spending some time to educate the kids uh, on the eclipse and the effects, because, man, I'm only 20 minutes away from that location where I live right now. So it's not not too bad to get there, and we're going to be right underneath the eclipse myself. Now, uh, in my studies, I ran into works by hobos, which is the Honey Bee Online Studies, H-O-B-O-S, Honey Bees Online Studies. And I think I saw it uh, published in the British Bee Journal about two years ago. It was called The Honeybee's Behavior During a Solar Eclipse by uh, Jagen Trotz. And it's J-U-R-G-E-N-T-A-U-T-Z. And I believe he's from the University of Watsburg, Germany, I think is what it is. Because I, I made a copy of it because I thought it was fascinating when I was reading some stuff about it. And, uh, the hobos is the, is the first to ever gather data from bees colonies during a solar eclipse. In fact, uh, you're right on the behavior of the bee colony includes brightness and air temperatures outside the beehive. And I thought it being like two minutes of cloud cover, that there would be like no change in the bees, cause, you know, you're just gonna have like this two minute of, you know, cloud cover, or no sun. But it's not so. Uh, one is, one such, a... Uh, spectacle was done on a solar eclipse on the 20th of March in 2015, uh, when approximately 80% of the sun in Germany was covered. Video recordings during the solar eclipse, thought to be the first of their kind ever, showed the behavior of the bees during the solar eclipse, and their flight activities began to increase noticeably the morning of March uh, 20th around about 9.30 a.m. So this happened uh, about two hours before the eclipse happened that they were getting mass more activity. And in fact, even the day before they were getting mass more activity before the eclipse. Uh, but I want to let you know, the bees' activities also decreased. Uh, so as the solar eclipse began to become darker, the bees uh, basically started uh slowing down and remained extremely... Uh, reduced throughout the solar eclipse, the reduction of flight activity is known as from the brightness. So when the sun was lower than 40 watts, it seemed to decrease the bees' activity. Only as the reemerging of the sun reached the brightness at 400 watts again, did the bees' flight activities begin to increase once more. Bees also reduce their uh, their flying ventures in evenings when the brightness levels fall below this. 400 watt mark. So it wasn't basically the eclipses doing do anything. It's just not the brightness. And then also has to do with many variables, temperature, climates, and stuff like that. Is it going to be a huge effect? You know, I'm not too sure. Now, when it comes to things making the bees crazy, as it would, as we would say, like on uh, moon having moonlight madness. It is my experience in beekeeping that there are links with the solar and lunar cycles. You know, a beekeeper can use the influence of the moon and the planets to manage your hive, and it goes with the seasons of the beekeeping. Uh Like, it depends how in-depth you want to get into beekeeping, but medieval and some beekeepers way in the past um were like the moon gardeners that would do with a hoe in the soil, you know, at night, uh, sowing seeds during... The phases of the moons. So when it comes to the phase of the moons, you have like the flower moon or what we call air days. And if you're looking at moon phases and stuff, that's a really stimulant brood activity of uh, movement of that phase. We have what we call fruit or fire days, which stimulate the collection of nectar. We have root and earth days, uh, what are good days for the bees. And they should be encouraged to build more comb. So on earth and root days of the moon phase, you should be feeding them a little bit more to make them build more comb. On leaf and water days, we recommend not working with bees because uh, they're not uh, as, as gentle as they would be on an air or a fire day. Uh, but also, this also has where they're most likely to swarm on those days, which is mostly around a full moon. Uh, they're more aggressive on hot and humid days. And regardless of what the moon's phase is, I think it's mostly just weather conditions. And they have priority of the moon phase. You know, if you really want to consider looking at a hive on those days, you know, I would really look at your moon phase and see what the weather temperatures are. And they kind of get you things. So, so thinking of planets, moon phases, the sun, the metaphysical, uh, the seasons of the beekeeper, and things like this eclipse... Uh, let's not get too overboard on our hippie trip of housing the bees. I mean, I try to do, uh, biodynamic beekeeping, uh, and I try many things, like I so said, I'm the guy that put the cell phone in the beehives to see what it would do. Uh, there's many things that we can try, and look into when we're doing bees and beekeeping. Or for anything of that nature. I mean, hell, does the eclipse mess with the flight patterns with the bats? I mean, it's dark. I mean, uh, I don't know, I don't study bats. But, I mean, uh, these are, these are some of the questions that we need to be asking. What if? And how come? Try it. Tell about it. Fail. Grow as we need to. Uh, I do not think two minutes will make a large difference in your bees. Everything will get about two minute window of a hiccup. But with, uh, without these large studies and effects and wondering, uh, It would just make us wonder. And it's still just a wonder because we really don't know. I don't think it's going to do too much. Just from the studies that I've read, it's just like you said, a small hiccup. But if we do study things, it might be the next thing that may save the bees. Maybe we need more light. Maybe we need to adjust some lighting to get the bees more active and not just rely on our sun. Some things to wonder. Hey, I am the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company. Remember to buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a small cottage industry, because that's where I started, and that's where a lot of people start. And remember, help your fellow man. Just one day, man, you're going to need help, too. And have a happy Fourth of July and summer.
1: I think the overriding message there is, yes, your bees will act differently during the eclipse. Maybe it's not a good time to mess with them, but they'll be just fine because there's been eclipses for as long as there's been a a solar system. And uh, bees have been here longer than us, and they've dealt with it before, and they're okay. Anyway, next question is for Darby Simpson on providing water for your cattle on your pasture.
3: Hey there, everybody. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast. This week, I've got a question from John about how we handle watering for our rotational grazing operation. And, uh, John, what we do is uh, we, we use a couple of different portable uh, 30-gallon uh, plastic troughs that we purchased at a local farm store. And on those, we've got a a really really expensive uh, setup. Let me tell you, it's a cheap float valve. It's about thirteen bucks. It's cast aluminum. Uh, it's Dare is the brand. D A R E. You can buy those at most farm stores or online. And it's just a really simple little float valve that's got a, a styrofoam lever in it. As the the water uh, rises up in that trough, it pushes that that styrofoam up because it wants to float, and that shuts off a really simple little valve inside of that, uh, that assembly there. And uh, you can just put a 90-degree elbow, a hard elbow, on that float valve, and then what I like to do uh, is use a quick disconnect from a garden hose. You can put an inline shutoff right there at the garden hose, and that makes it pretty fast and simple to disconnect everything um and in in terms of when we're moving it uh you you'd asked in your email we we just dump it because it's only about thirty gallons, and that thirty gallon trough tends to keep up with our cattle herd now, as our cattle herd grows, we'll probably have to go to a larger trough or maybe put two of them out there, uh which is always an option if we've got a hose running out you know to that trough, we can put a splitter valve on there and have two lines going out for two troughs, but uh, as of right now, that one thirty-gallon tank does the trick just fine. I think we've got one that's larger, maybe forty gallons. Um, but uh, yeah, we just dump that, and it's not so much water that the uh, you know the ground really has a problem with it. Um, particularly as we start getting into summer and it gets a little bit warmer and drier, we can just dump that out. Uh, and then uh, two, if you you know if you've got that inline uh, little shutoff valve there on your hose with your your uh, quick connect. Uh, assembly, uh, you, you can then take that hose and, you know, turn it on, but throttle it back so you get a nice hard stream and that makes it nice to, uh, spray out the trough, clean it out, keep it clean. Something that's really essential for livestock is to have good, clean drinking water. I remember reading in a book one time, uh, and maybe this is a little bit extreme, but the guy said, you know, uh, if you wouldn't drink the, the water that you're putting in front of your livestock, then you shouldn't expect them to drink it either. And while that's maybe a little bit over the top, it's a really good rule of thumb. It, it, it does give you a good perspective about the fact that you do need to keep good, clean drinking water in front of your animals so that they'll be uh, comfortable and so that they'll perform well. So uh, beyond that, what we do is we've got some post hydrants out in our, our pasture. It's a, It's a buried water system here where I'm at. You've got to go down about three feet. Uh, most of mine's buried at four feet, just because I I tend to overbuild everything. But uh, we we've got some post hydrants about every 200 to 250 feet, uh, just along an internal fence line in our main grazing areas, that pop up, and then we can just uh, you know uh, connect about a hundred foot hose. A lot a lot of times our our paddocks are going to be no more than you know a uh, hundred feet either side of one of those post hydrants. So we can put about 100 or 125 feet of hose on that and, uh, just leave it connected to that one post hydrant for a couple of three days and dump it out and just drag it down to the, the next uh, paddock for the cows. So it's really pretty simple and, uh, that, that's what we do. And I, I think really, you know, unless you're getting up into a, a quite a bit of cattle, one, uh, drinking system is is more than enough. We're, we've got about 40 head of cattle right now, and that one 40-gallon tank keeps up with them, now given we're in the cooler part of the year. But uh, you really don't need much more than that. So anyway, John, that's how we do it. Thanks for the question. Uh, if you got any further questions, feel free to shoot me an email. I'll be happy to answer it for you. For everyone else, please feel free to check out my website at DarbySimpson.com. There's a lot of free blog articles out there. And if you really dig this kind of stuff, check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast that I do weekly with Diego Footer. At permaculturevoices.com, you can also find that in the iTunes store. Uh, We spend an hour each week going through all kinds of stuff like, you know, uh, fencing systems or, you know, how to raise chickens on pasture, how to raise pigs in the woods, marketing, um, you know, insurance, anything to do with running a farm business for profit uh, basically, kind of the way we farm here is we're we're taking a a, a you know a functionally organic, beyond organic approach to raising meats on pasture. We're chemical free. So if you're into that kind of thing, check out the uh, the podcast, see if you like it. If you want to go really deep, we have uh, the third installment upcoming this fall in October of our farm business essentials workshop that Diego and I put on together. This is a three day. Very intensive workshop. Uh, we've run it twice before, filled it up both times, looking forward to doing it again this fall. If you are interested in making money, whether it be part-time or full-time at farming, and you want to put some personal context to it and have a plan, a complete plan, an A-to-Z plan on how to go about it, check out this workshop. I promise you it will Uh, give you way more value back than what you put into it. Head on out to permaculturevoices.com. Check out the details on that. Again, it's upcoming the end of October in central Indiana, just outside of Indianapolis, and it's a three-day intensive workshop. You can find all the details out there at permaculturevoices.com. As always, everyone, thanks for sending in the questions. Keep them coming. I'm always happy to come on and answer them for you guys and help you out. Really enjoy helping people claim a little piece of liberty for their lives by raising some of their own nutritious food. And who knows? Maybe you can raise a little extra nutritious food and sell it to people you know and offset the cost of raising your own food or maybe even get your food for free or better yet, have a nice little tidy side income from a farmstead business. As always, everyone, have a great weekend and take care. Bye-bye. Good stuff from
1: Darby. One thing that made me think of is a video – The features Joel Salatin that I wanted to make you guys aware of. It's a little bit of clickbait in the title. It's called How Joel Salatin Buys Land for $30 an Acre. And I'll give away the clickbait um, fakery, I guess. Um, He doesn't actually buy anything, but it's a way to think of it. And what he means by it is he makes certain very inexpensive improvements to land, like movable fencing and portable water solutions, like Darby's talking about. And it allows the land to do twice of what it would otherwise be able to do. So, by being strategic about how you make certain, especially portable, low-cost improvements, if you double land's capacity, you double land's production, you double land's value. Effectively, if you've had a hundred acres and you spent, you know, three thousand uh, dollars improving that hundred acres in a way that lets that 100 acres handle the cattle or chickens or whatever that you would get on 200 acres, you've effectively bought another 100 acres of land for $30 an acre. It's a very interesting video, and he's using a water solution very similar to what Darby's describing in this uh, response. So it might be something you want to take a look at. If it's like a 45-minute video, but you can you can get most of it from the, the the basics of it from the first 10 minutes. And I do have it linked in the show notes. Next up, I have a question for Stephen Harris on solar for keeping rabbits cool. Yeah, Steve, take it away, man.
4: Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question, Ryan in I believe Iowa has written to me saying, Please help me keep my bunnies cool. How would you go about building a solar-powered cooling fan or swamp cooler system for outdoor rabbit hutches? Details. I have three rabbit hutches, pictures below. Thanks for the pictures. With either two or three cages per hutch, similar but a little different build, and I'd like to add a fan or a swamp cooler to them during the hottest part of the year to cool the rabbit. They are far away from the house, and there is no exterior outlets in the backside of the house we rent. I've thought about hanging wet burlap over the front and pointing a fan at it and or building a bucket swamp cooler and running PVC pipes to the front of each cage. Any thoughts? Thanks for your thoughts. Ryan. Ryan, forget the burlap, wet burlap, the swamp cooler and everything out that's you need something that is going to last. And I had to go online for a couple of hours and uh read all about rabbits. And rabbits do have issues with the heat in the summertime. Despite me seeing them in the desert every August when I was working for Chrysler I guess I probably did see more of them in the evening in the morning than I did during the heat of the day. Rabbits like to retreat to their underground lairs in the heat of the day. And I don't uh I don't blame them. So uh what some people have done and I totally agree with is you get some two liter soda bottles, uh fill them about eighty, eighty, ninety percent the way up with water, freeze them, and you have Some in the freezer and some in the hutches. Take the water, frozen water bottle and put it, for example, in the back left-hand corner of the hutch for the rabbit. Therefore, if the rabbit wants to be cooler, he can get nearer to the bottle that he so desires, and it will help cool down your bunny. Oh, sorry, I forgot the most important thing. One. Point your hutches north so the sun isn't coming in on the bunnies. Two, go to Home Depot and get some one-inch foam board of any type. Liquid nails the foam board to the top of the hutch, the back of the hutch, and each side of the hutch except for the front area with the cages facing out. Then get some cheap exterior white latex paint for all of about $10 per gallon at Home Depot and use this to paint the foam and everything bright white not only will this help the foam uh, from degradation by uv light and exposure i mean it really protects the foam but the white will help reflect the sunlight this prevents excess solar heat from getting in so all you're dealing with is the ambient heat so that's step one step two is a two liter bottles uh frozen uh, have some in the freezer, some in the hutches, and rotate them out every day. Now, the thing about, you know how humans, we sweat through our skin and that cools us. Dogs, they pant. They they uh, cool themselves through their mouth and their tongue. Well, it turns out rabbits cool themselves with blood flow through their ears. Their ears are their cooling mechanism. So what I want you to do is go to Amazon.com and find some 40 millimeter by 40 millimeter by about 10 millimeter thick computer fans, and they're 12-volt fans. Just search for 40 millimeter 12-volt fans on Amazon, and you will find them. There's a bunch of them. You get like five for 13 bucks. It's a bargain. And then... uh, I want you to put the fan, if the ice is in the back left, I want you to put the fan in the upper right of the hutch so it's not blowing on the rabbit when it's near the ice. And I want you to put the fan at about the height of the ears of the rabbit in the hutch. And you are going to run these fans directly to a solar panel. Now you want a 10 watt or a 12 watt solar panel. Most of these fans are, uh, .15 amps. When at 12 volts, that means it would be, you know, about 18, uh, sorry, 1.8 watts. So you want to have double the solar panel of what you have in wattage for the fan because angle of the sun, angle of the solar panel, and you know, wispy clouds and everything else. You want to have more panel than you need so it runs more often. When the sun's out, it's warmer, then the fans are going to be are going to be energized and cooling the rabbits. But the thing is, the rabbit decides if it wants to move into the moving air and raise his ears. It's not blowing on him constantly. So he's got the hutch. He's got the fan area for his ears, and he's got the cool water bottles. I think this is a, a really good multiple approach to uh, this problem. So if you got three hutches, sorry, three cages in a hutch, 1.8 plus 1.8 plus 1.8 is something less than 6, 5.4 watts. So get a 10-watt solar panel for 3.15 amp at 12-volt fans. Wire positive, positive, negative, negative. No battery, no controller, no nothing. And just put the solar panel on top of the hutch. When the sun is shining, the fan's spinning. When the sun's not shining, the fan isn't spinning. And I think this will go a long way towards keeping your bunnies cool. Uh, it, like I said, you know, put the fan at, like, so the bottom of the fan would be at the top of their head. So the rest of the fan will blow on their ears. And I think your bunnies are really going to like this. And you swapping out a 2-liter water bottle will last for most of the day. They can lean up against it. Uh the, You will actually, you know, if you're as small as a bunny and you're up next to a 2-liter water bottle that's a lot bigger than you you are actually going to be radiating a lot of heat uh from your skin and your fur onto that water bottle that we then feel as the sensation of cold so it's not radiating cold it's radiating heat and it's being absorbed which gives us the feeling of being cold. But, uh, I think this will work very well for you. You know, I called and talked to Ryan personally because it was going to be a couple weeks before I did this answer. And it's now July, the heat of the summer. <laughs> he wrote me again say, please help me keep my bunnies cool. Uh, and so I, uh, front loaded him and asked him what he thought about the answer. He loved the answer. Thought it was a great idea. I hope this, you know, bare-bones, keep-it-simple-stupid solution can help any of you other people out there with rabbits. In fact, if you want, you know, put comments on the TSP page for this show, and uh, I'll read them or email them to me, because I'd like to see what other people have done to keep their bunnies cool. And if you do this, let me know! Do your bunnies like it? I'm not a rabbit expert. I'm an expert in thermodynamics, but not a rabbit expert. So I actually had to go read about bunnies. And you know what? You guys always give me something fascinating to do every week. It's like, okay, you have a problem, but I don't know about chickens. So I got to apply my thermodynamics and engineering to... Your chickens or to your microgreens or whatever. So I have to call people, talk to them about microgreen business, you know, or go online and read about rabbits and everything. You know, I think this is a good thing that what Jack preaches, you can teach yourself, uh, learning is not now, is not always knowledge, but what you're after is knowledge instead of just information. And you know, I'll go off, and I, I'm learning something every day on some different subject out there. And I think this is a good example to you and to your children that you can basically go out there and you can learn almost anything you want. It's uh, really pretty fascinating. So, anyways, guys, thank you so much for the question. I have some more in the queue. Email me in some more questions. I always like to have a bunch of them to select from so I can line them up, uh, sometimes with other people on TSP and like we did last week with Charles the Humble Mechanic. Uh, sometimes we do two-parters and, uh, it's always a blast doing this. Thank you so much. If you want to see all the stuff I've done with Jack and it's all my stuff is mostly for free, You can go to steven1234.com and see it all and listen to a lot more. Thanks, guys. You're awesome. Talk to you next week.
1: Great stuff from Stephen Harris, who really is an incredible servant to this audience, and I'd like to thank him for that. Uh, Next up, I have a question for Erica Strauss on storing fats in your pantry. Erica, take it away. Hey guys, Erica
5: here from Northwest Edible and wedible.com calling in today to answer Dustin's question. Dustin wants to know, what's a good way to store fat in your food prep? What are good fats to store for health and for long-term stability? And can I store my home rendered animal fats? What about liquid fats? Okay, now well, first thing, Dustin, because um, I wanna get this one out of the way, the health aspect of the various fats is just above my pay grade. My opinion is that minimally processed saturated animal fats are a far better choice than highly processed seed oils like canola oil. And in my own kitchen, the only liquid fat I use with any regularity is olive oil. I do not personally buy, use, store, or in as much as I really can control and within reason consume corn oil, canola oil, cottonseed oil, vegetable oil, which is made of soybeans typically. But that's me. You know, your own conclusions about the health aspects of different kinds of fat will depend greatly on what your assumptions are going into it and sort of which cherry picked experts you choose to listen to. I can tell you from a fat storage perspective, absolutely fats that contain more saturated fatty acids. Those are fats that are solid at room temperature, like animal fats and tropical vegetable fats like coconut oil. These fats store far better than liquid fats, oils, which are made up of unsaturated fatty acids. And there's some chemistry behind why it's not really relevant to this answer. Just know that solid at room temperature means a more highly saturated fat with a longer shelf life. And this is great news for people like me who do prefer lard to, you know, air quotes here, heart healthy, canola oil and the like. Now, the biggest problem with storing any fat, saturated or unsaturated, in the long term is rancidity. Rancidity is a chemical sort of chain reaction within the fat that causes a very unpleasant off smell and taste. A rancid oil will have, I describe it as kind of an acrid smell. It'll be like oil paint or nail polish remover. It's very unpleasant. Okay, now how do fats go rancid? There's a famous Ernest Hemingway quote from The Sun Also rises. Bill asks, how did you go bankrupt? And Mike says, two ways, gradually and then suddenly. And that's how fats go rancid, gradually and then suddenly. There's a period of time where the fat is fresh and non-rancid, and then there is a period of time where the rancidity is hardly perceptible, but it's there, chemically speaking, sort of slowly compromising your fat, and then boom, your fat is rancid, enough basically that it's unusable. The trick to longer-term storage of fats is to maximize the time before that rancidity compromises your fat. Now, there are three ways that Fats go rancid. The first is called hydrolytic rancidity, which is a reaction with fat and water. This is most likely to be a problem with uh, the kind of fats that we deal with, with butter, which is typically between 15 to 20 percent water. The second is oxidative rancidity, which is a reaction of fat and oxygen. This is the most common reason that fats degrade. Oxygen reacts with unsaturated fatty acids. It breaks them apart, releasing unpleasant smelling and tasting volatiles. Even saturated fats like lard contain a proportion of unsaturated fatty acids. And so even the fats that we call saturated from a health and culinary perspective are affected by oxidative rancidity. However, the rancidification process will progress far more slowly in fats with a smaller proportion of unsaturated fatty acids. Reducing the fat's exposure to oxygen through airtight packaging also slows down oxidative rancidity. Now, the third pathway is microbial rancidity, which is when microorganisms such as bacteria or molds use their own enzymes to break down fat. Sterilization reduces the risk of microbial rancidity, and it's unlikely that that's going to be a big problem for you in commercially processed fats, also in properly processed home rendered fats. For example, I home render my own lard. I have never had mold or bacteria growth in my own lard. So what's wrong with rancid fats? Well, the first problem is that they're going to make your food taste really bad. The compounds in rancid oil have a very unpleasant taste and a very unpleasant aroma, and you're going to notice that when you use these oils and fats in your food. The second problem is that rancid fats are just bad for you. They're not bad for you in a, you know, botulism, this is poisonous and going to kill you right away, some kind of foodborne illness sort of thing. But the byproducts generated as an oil goes rancid are associated with long-term health damage, including advanced aging, neurological disorders, heart disease, even cancer. So you don't want a steady diet of rancid oil in your life. It's just its not good for your long-term health. So it's important that we do what we can to increase the shelf life of our fats and delay the onset of rancidity. So all fats are going to benefit from best practices in purchasing and storage, not just fats that you're thinking of for your preparedness, even your everyday oils and stuff that you use for salad dressing. You're going to want to do a couple of things. First, purchase your bulk oils from a high turnover place. I get most of my oil at Costco because even though they sell in larger quantities, they do so much volume that the product that I buy on the shelf at Costco is very fresh. If you have a busy supermarket in your neighborhood, that could be a great choice too. What you don't wanna do is pick up a bottle of oil at some random convenience mart that might've had that bottle of oil on the shelf for six or eight months before you buy it. Second, you only want to open one oil or container of fat at a time if you can manage it or at the very least limit how much you have active in terms of fats, in terms of how much you can get through in a reasonable period of time. This is because storing your unopened oils sealed in their original packaging is typically going to be best. You know, in my own home, I have a tub of coconut oil, a bottle of olive oil, a thing of butter, a thing of lard, all sort of working at the same time because there are different uses for all these fats. But you don't want to have, you know, a bunch of different oils open that you're never reasonably going to use up. Between the time when you open them and the time when they all start to kind of go off. So just be aware of that. You also want to keep your oils cool and out of direct sunlight. This is the third point. It's really important. A lot of people store oil like in a clear glass bottle on the side of their stove where it's exposed to a lot of heat cycles, a lot of sunlight. These are some of the worst conditions to, to store your oil in. That said, I will admit that I do have a bottle of oil in a clear mason jar right by the side of my stove, stays there all the time. And the reason I can get away with this is it's a small bottle and I go through it really quickly quickly and I refill it from a bulk container of olive oil that's kept cool and in my pantry which is dark like 95% of the time. So be very careful about exposing the majority of your oil uh, to sunlight and to heat cycles like that. And then fourth, don't ever let water get into your fats. Don't ever let contaminants in general get into your fats. Um, This is kind of an issue with solid fats more than liquid oils. But if you're dipping into your lard or your coconut oil, use a very clean, like perfectly clean spoon. Do not allow contaminants to get into your coconut oil, into your lard this will severely compromise the shelf life of your fat. Okay. So those are some basic ways to make any fat last longer in your household. But coming at this from a prepper standpoint, if we want our fats to last as long as possible, what do we do? Well, I'm going to be honest with you guys, fats are one of those storage items where getting a deep rotating pantry with up to several years of fat on hand that's constantly and consistently replenished, that should be your goal. This is not a situation where you can just go buy something once, stick it away for 25 years and think, okay, good, I've checked that off of my prepper list. Even if you go buy a number 10 can of freeze-dried butter from one of the prepper supply houses, even that kind of product, highly processed as it is, in a number 10 can, with air excluded, even that has like a three to five year shelf life. So you just have to look at fats differently than beans or wheat berries in mylar bags. With fat, you want to slowly work up to having a pantry that's deeply stocked, with backstock of fat that goes, you know, however many months or years you're comfortable with. Be smart, be organized. You want to make sure you're dating and rotating your oils and your fats. You want to make sure that the first product in is the first product out. This is the FIFO principle, very important with our preps. And then in figuring out how much fat you want to keep on hand, it's useful to think not just about how many years of storage you want, and how you use fat in your day-to-day cooking and how you expect you would use it in an emergency or a long-term situation. But also think about what percentage of your storage calories you want in fat. Fats are extremely dense calorically, which can be great for space-efficient food storage. You may not need as much fat on hand as you think you do. If you math out how many calories of fat You actually want to keep on hand or maybe your family eats keto and you're going to need a whole lot more calories from fat. But the exercise, which I did with my own family many years ago, is very useful in getting a baseline for how much total fats you're going to want to keep on hand. And then what I highly recommend is that you buy in sizes and quantities that are appropriate for your use. And what I mean by this is if you can't use a one gallon jug of olive oil in six months or a year after opening it, you should buy your olive oil in smaller containers. Even if the unopened jug lasts two years, you need to make sure that it's packaged in such a way that you can utilize it fully after you open it. All right. What fats do I think preppers should consider for their food storage? These are all fats that are going to give you a medium term shelf life between two and in some cases, maybe up to about 10 years. So again, not something where you can buy it once and forget about it, but definitely something that'll allow you to build a nice deep backstock in your pantry. First up, olive oil. I love olive oil, 73% monounsaturated fatty acids. It's a longer lasting liquid Fat than any processed seed or vegetable oil. Buy it from a place with very high turnover and look for a best by date because the harvest and the processing conditions of the oil can make a big impact on storability. Typically, olive oil will last unopened two years, but if bought very fresh packaged in dark metal tins and stored well. You could get double the storage life out of that, actually. There are some olive oils that will last for about four years quite well. Next up, ghee. Uh, Fresh butter is not a good choice for even medium-term storage. In the freezer, you get about a year, maybe a little bit more from butter, but it doesn't last very long because of that water content like we talked about. But ghee, which is clarified butter, which has had all the water removed, will stay at good condition at cool room temperature for up to about a year in its sealed original container, and you'll get two or even three years in the fridge with your ghee. Lard is my choice of uh, cooking fat. I love lard. It's been the poster child for unhealthy saturated fat for decades. But the irony is that lard is actually only about 40% saturated fatty acids. It's 45% monounsaturated, which is the same kind of fat that's found in olive oil. Now, all those unsaturated fatty acids mean that lard, while long lasting, doesn't have an infinite shelf life. Clean home rendered lard will store two to four months at kitchen temperatures, you know, the temperature by your stove, basically uh, 12 to 18 months in a fridge or at chilly root cellar temperatures. Frozen sealed lard will last years. I've had lard for my freezer that's three years old. That's perfectly good. Um, so you probably get more than that, although I can't personally vouch for it. And then commercial lard, like you'd buy at the store, Manteca, that kind of stuff, usually has added stabilizers, um, and it will last at least two years at cool room temperature if unopened. And you might be able to get a little bit longer than that, too. Next up, tallow. I haven't personally worked with tallow in the same quantity that I've worked with lard, but it's very similar in its fatty acid profile, so you can expect a similar shelf life and longevity to lard. Coconut oil, over 85% fully saturated fatty acids. Coconut oil is the king of long-lasting, unprocessed fats. There's two common types of coconut oil. Refined coconut oil doesn't have much of a coconut taste. It's liquid at room temperature. It's popular with low- carb and paleo folks who are trying to increase their intake of medium chain triglycerides. Refined coconut oil has a shelf life on par with most refined liquid oils, 12 months or so, nothing very useful there. But unrefined coconut oil, also called virgin coconut oil, is a highly saturated fat, solid at temperatures below 76 degrees Fahrenheit, and has excellent storage abilities. Officially, most manufacturers of coconut oil say that their sealed tubs of unrefined coconut oil will last about two years. Unofficially, preppers and coconut oil hoarders are reporting a six to seven year shelf life. Vegetable shortening, good old Crisco. So vegetable shortening like Crisco is an unsaturated liquid oil that is made partially saturated through a process called hydrogenation. Basically, they jam a bunch of extra hydrogen molecules into the oil, making the liquid oil have a molecular structure like a saturated fat. So that's what makes Crisco and margarine solid at room temperature. Honestly, I never, ever, ever use shortening, uh, vegetable shortening, or margarine in my cooking, but I still keep a small tub of Crisco on hand. Why shelf life and versatility in an emergency? You could make a Crisco candle, The Crisco company says you'll get about two years at room temperature out of their shortening, but anecdotal evidence from preppers suggests 10 plus years or more. On a personal note, the vast majority of my shorter term fat storage, the stuff I go through within a year or two, is in olive oil. The vast majority of my medium term fat storage is in coconut oil. I keep enough fat on hand for several years for a family of four. And as one tub of coconut oil is used up, I replace it with another one from the store, always trying to keep my backstock nice and consistent. When you consider how much fat to keep on hand, look at your dietary needs. As I discussed, look at your caloric goals there, but also look at the personal care uses for some of these fats. In other words, if you're in a situation where you're tapping into your deep backstock of fats, are you maybe also in a situation where you're making? making? making your own soap or making your own herbal salves. Just something to consider because fats like coconut oil and lard and olive oil have an important use in personal care as well. All right, Dustin and rest of the friends out there in TSP land, I hope this has been helpful. Again, this has been Erica for the Expert Council. You can come find me anytime at Northwest Edible Life, nwedible.com. I share my stuff on Facebook, facebook.com slash nwedible. So like if you haven't already. And if you really like what I do and you want to send a dollar a month my way, you can find me on Patreon, patreon.com slash nwedible. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. I will talk to you in a couple of weeks.
1: Listening to all that, it, it made me think about resources being wasted, uh, especially for you hunters. I'll talk about that a little bit later uh, because it kind of ties in with something Keith Snow's going to say. Before we get to Mr. Snow, or should I say Chef, Mr. Chef Snow, uh, <laughs> let's uh, hear from Nicole Sauce on marketing your local business and using WordPress as a web marketing platform. Nicole, take it away.
6: Howdy TSP, Nicole Sauce here from Living Free in Tennessee taking an expert counsel question from Nick. Nick has rabbits and chickens on his homestead and knows he needs to reach out to local markets but is not exactly sure where to start. And he also has a WordPress setup on Hostgator, but can't seem to get the basic site deployed. He asks for a WordPress for Dummies plugin or something of that nature. Well, Nick, the first question's pretty fast, so I'm gonna knock out both of these in one session, and Jack, please forgive me if I go a little over. I will do my best to keep this under the time allotment, so. If you need to kill me later, kill me later. This question about websites, by the way, has been asked by multiple TSP people um, over on Facebook and via email, so I thought it was time to have a little bit of a throwdown about websites. But first, let's talk about the reaching out to local markets question for Nick. Um, there's really only three steps to this, and the first step is get up, the second step is get out, and the third step is get going. I'm sorry that's how how easy it is just reach out to local markets it may seem hard But it's quite easy. If you're selling meat, go out and talk to people who would want to buy it. Go to restaurants and meet the chefs and managers. Go talk to local foodies at your farmer's market. Go talk to some of your local grocers. Talk to anybody who's interested in food at all and tell them your story and find out what they're interested in. You can give them samples if you want them to try out your product and make it really easy to order. Like include an order sheet or your phone number or card. That's all you got to do. Tell your story. If your product is not ready, tell them about it and when it will be ready, and then they'll know how to reach out to you. And then stay in contact. Make friends with other homesteaders and other meat producers. Most people in this space are totally willing to share their insights. And then if there's like a local farm-to-table distribution hub, get to know those people. They're usually dying for more sources. That's pretty much all I have to say about that. Get up, Get get out and get going. Uh, I have a friend who started a farm here locally called Full Circle Heritage Farms, and they specialize in heritage breeds of pork. And the way I know her is, I'm also friends with a restaurant owner in a town that's about 60 miles away. He reached out to me and said, "Hey, there's somebody who has a homestead near you who's raising pigs." Introduced us, and she wasn't. She was two years out on her meat already talking to restaurant people, and he bought a pig. The first pigs that were available, he bought. So that set her up for a long-term growth curve, but she also sells through many avenues. She sells online, she's at farmer's markets, she's in local restaurants. She just got up, got out, and got going. That was pretty much it. As for your second question about websites, well, You're not alone. Many people have this question or have turned to a service like Wix out of WordPress frustration. And I think it's time to throw down. I am certain I'm going to hear from some developers out there in the TSP network who have, frankly, been subject to the curse of knowledge for a little too long and have unrealistic expectations about what their clients should know, are willing to know, will know about hosting and cPanel access and CSS code. Guys, stop it. Embrace that you have the curse of knowledge and that a person starting a business sees a website as a means to convey a marketing message. And for those of you not using WordPress, but who have a site up on Wix or Squarespace or any of those other things, um, good job at least you have a website. That is better than having no website. So don't be all tortured because you're not on WordPress. I do have strong opinions about WordPress. I think it's awesome. And I think it's the best way to have your first website. So Nick, here it is. We'll start with 10 principles of websites for the newbie. Principle number one, own your own assets. I cannot tell you how many people I have rescued from this problem. So make sure when you're setting up your new website and new business that you own your domain name, have ownership over your hosting account, have ownership over your web content, even if that means that at the end of the relationship with a host or a web developer, you can have it on a DVD, which will be largely useless to you, but is better than not owning your own content that you're making. And make sure you have administration, administrative usernames and passwords to all of that. So. This is the most important thing ever. Okay, second, avoid cheap hosts and don't buy a year in advance or five years or ten years. Cheap hosts work at the outset. And as you grow, they might not. And cheap hosts can't afford you to give you good customer service. So that's kind of like, ah. So if, you're, if you are in a one-year relationship right now with a cheap host... I hope it works for you for the whole year. That's awesome that your website's up, but it would have been better if you could cancel without losing your money, because when you cancel from a cheap host, you don't get your money back. I had a client this year who was told to buy five years of GoDaddy hosting in advance to save a bunch of money by her web company, and they also built her a website and then hosted it on their own server. So that was like she didn't even need to pay for that hosting because it was hosted somewhere else. And then at the end of that relationship, she ended up losing, you know, a ton of money with that web company, but also GoDaddy's not the right solution for her. It's a shared hosting environment that has too many websites on it and it's slow. Okay, principle number 3, use WordPress. There has been a lot of debate about this, and solutions like Squarespace and Wix and other ones are, in fact, easier for the newbie to get going because you just drag and drop things. But there are also very limiting. I looked up how much Wix costs, and to do the basic functionality that I can set up for somebody for 25 bucks a month in hosting, they charge also $25 a month. And you don't have the same flexibility. I mean, for that, you do get some pretty good traffic and you have to use their system. And if you want to do something that's outside the very strongly set borders of their system, you're screwed. If your shopping cart needs are at all complex, it's not going to work. The shopping cart's not going to work. Now... That doesn't mean it's horrible to be on Wix, but I kind of think it's horrible long-term for people if you're going to have a business that's growing and needs some flexibility in how things go. Principle number four, buy a premium template. WordPress comes with a template called 2017, I think, that you can use, and it has like a pretty header graphic and blah, blah, blah. It's a very bare-bones. Premium templates are built by developers to apply to multiple different Businesses and looks and feels and they range anywhere from like 29 bucks to 89 bucks for a premium template. I have a few premium templates that I've used a lot that have been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times and they're awesome. They usually have built in things like a slider if you want a slider at the top or a form building app or Any of a number of things. I have one that's really cool. It has animations for numbers. So when I'm working with policy groups and they want to display three numbers, you can see them, you know, like grow, which is kind of cool if you're trying to make a statement about that. So premium templates are awesome and they're not expensive. So if you are serious about your business and can afford the twenty-nine to eighty nine dollars for your website, just spend the money, man. And make sure it is mobile compatible and WooCommerce compatible. Years ago, I started a business, and I was talked into a $5,000 custom template by somebody. That's a lot of bloody money. But it was a rather large company, and I let it go, and this is how I learned this lesson the hard way. It worked for about a year, and then they didn't really update anything as WordPress's system updated and it stopped working. And you know what? I spent $60 on a premium template and I rebuilt the site exactly as it was visually on that template, which means I wasted all of that money. Learn from my mistake. Don't do it. Okay. Number five, content is king. Without meaningful content, a website is like a balloon with no air in it. It's just flaccid. And it's very important to take the time to put together your marketing content before you pay anyone to do anything for you on the web because they're going to build you something and show it to you. And you're going to be like, okay, boxes in Latin. Awesome. I don't know what to do with boxes in Latin. So even if it's just a one-page site of sort of some ideas about visuals that would relate to your company and some shopping cart content, because, of course, you're selling stuff, so you have a shopping cart, right? Right. Make sure you have that up and running and ready to go before you engage your web developer because they'll love you and you'll love you. And if you're starting with WordPress and building your own site from scratch for the first time ever and you don't have content, it's hard to decide, I want a front page that has this and this and this and that call to action if you haven't spent time putting the content together. Okay, number six, SEO is a scam. I bet that's going to tick some of you guys off who do SEO. Okay, no, not all SEO is a scam, but most people selling SEO are scam artists. It drives me nuts. Most people selling you monthly contracts for SEO are scam artists, and you should run and not walk away. I had a client who was paying $500 a month for her brand new website. It had three pages. She was going to have to pay another $1,000 to just add a bloody blog and it was based on WordPress, but they had it locked down. And what they were selling her was geolocation and listings on Google and Yahoo and Bing and SEO. And they were going to bring all these new clients and leads. And oh my God, that's awful. She was paying $500 for nothing. She was paying $500 for a free SEO plugin that you can install for yourself on your WordPress page and to go to Google and Bing and Yahoo and register your company. Have you ever tried that? Like, go to Claim My Business on Google. Make sure you're in there. Claim your business. It's that easy. It takes like 10 minutes. Yahoo and Bing are basically the same. So... SEO really can be a scam. Now that, that said, number seven, SEO is very important. And SEO is actually a thing. It's something I encourage you to learn the basics about. Jack's covered it a few times on his podcast since I started listening. However, it is also not a silver bullet. Search engines have the goal of linking people with information they seek. So scamming your way into search results is still possible in some cases, but it's not the best approach. Better is to become the best resource so that people can find you. And yes, things like decent load times on your site, SSL, keyword matching, links that work, and other SEO tweaks can really help you. And that's why... When we provide or people I recommend provide SEO support to a customer, it's, it's usually a setup arrangement. We'll analyze their site, go through and fix the things that look bad, and we provide some mentoring so that they are putting new content on their own site that is, has better SEO optimization. Otherwise, we have to go back and fix stuff, and that's kind of a pain in the rear. Okay, principle number seven, avoid new ways of organizing information on your page. The internet has been around for a while now, and it has evolved to a point where it's no longer necessary to reinvent the wheel every time you build a website. This is why premium templates work. This is why WordPress is currently awesome. It may not be awesome forever, but it is right now. Now, people expect your home button to be in the upper left corner. If you put your home button in the bottom right corner, they're not going to find it. They're going to be frustrated. Okay, principle number nine, pay a designer. If design is not your thing, consider using a designer for your original concept. This costs some money, so long as they agree to work within a premium template. Many designers will try to talk you into something custom. Just don't do it. Not unless you have a huge budget and a super cool custom database driven, heuristic predictive website based tool that is the basis of your company marketing rabbits to former to farmers in Oregon or something. Just don't give into that temptation. It's very rare that I come across a startup that actually needs to develop something custom. It has happened. I've done some interesting file libraries for people and other stuff, but usually the business is selling a product. And usually the product is nothing crazy. And what they need to do is explain the value of the product to their customer, look credible, and make it easy to buy it. So if paying a designer to make your front page look really, really good is in your budget and you're not a designer, I'd consider paying a a designer. And if if it is not in your budget, work towards putting it in your budget because it's amazing. Even... Even designers who are professionals sometimes pay other designers to do this. Okay, principle number 10. Don't hate money. Thanks, Jack, for that one. Make sure there's a way for people to buy your stuff and make it prominent and easy to do on your website. Or put another way from my friend PA Prepper over on the Zello channel, focus your primary navigation on the money links. These are the links that bring you money. Not that hard, right? If that means putting your podcast as your primary feed because people downloading your podcast equals, equals your living, well then do that. Jack does that. That's what you see when you get to his site. If you are, if you, if your About Us page is kind of background info, put that in your secondary navigation because you want your money links up front and in people's face, especially at the startup phase where your website's probably not going to be very large. You've got like three to five seconds for people to understand what value you bring to them and do something. And that also means that having fewer calls to action on a page can be really important. Like the first call to action I see on most pages is either download my content or buy my stuff or contact us. Those are those are the three types I usually see. I had a client come in this year who had a website already that they hated. And why they hated it was primarily because the front picture was horrible and their designer had chosen some stock photo that had a horrible picture i don't know why you'd ever do that but there it was and then when i looked at their page it went on for miles and it talked about a public policy issue and linked to legislation that had been passed and blah 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 and the target of this website The target was not a public policy person, and so I reconfigured their front page to have a value proposition that would meet their target, a prominent call to action to give them a phone call, and then under that, if you were really interested in scrolled, you could finally go into the policy information if you wanted to. Their close rate went through the roof. Okay, so not in the principles, but going without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, is make sure everything works on your website before you launch it. That means check it on a phone, check it on your computer, check it on your dad's phone, and make sure all those links work. That's not in the principle, but that is a principle of websites. As for your question, Nick, I have two things to say. Uh, my first question is, is WordPress installed right? And have you deployed a premium template? HostGator has a WordPress installer called Fantastico that's supposed to make things easy. I have not used HostGator or their installer, but I have done the same basic thing on other hosts with no problems. So just make sure that's all working. And if it's not, contact their customer support. Usually customer support finds one or two things that you need to do differently, like... Um, maybe set up the username and password differently and it can get you over the hump. Based on the other site building tools you have used, I'm thinking that you're not a service-side web development guy, so... That's fine. Maybe consider finding a developer you trust locally or us to set up your site and install a premium template so that it'll get you rolling. We charge 250 bucks for that, but we do have parameters on which premium templates and hosting services we will support because we have contacts at the host. And any web developer will probably have something like that for you, too. um, If you just need to learn how to use WordPress and what posts are and pages and comments and, you know, categories and tags and how those all work together... We have put together a resource for you that you can look at. just a guide to using WordPress, and I have put a link in the email to Jack to share with all of you so that you can download it and enjoy some fun reading about WordPress. Folks, I hope that helps many of you get started towards launching your new business along with a good basic site. Reach out to a web developer if you're stuck at this corner and just pay them a little bit to get it set up. If you want to use us for that, just go to livingfreeintennessee.com forward slash tspweb and fill out the inquiry form and we will hook you up. Nick, you have inspired me to get off my ass and develop an online course for setting up a basic WordPress site for a startup business. Thanks for that. I've been thinking about it for a year and your question kind of put me over the edge. Jack, thanks for all you do and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this topic. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm sure I went over 10 minutes. And remember, if you love coffee and love Jack, make sure you join the MSB before you order any because the best discount you can get on Holler Roast Coffee right now is through your MSB. Okay, friends, make it a great week.
1: Great stuff from Nicole. And uh, next I have a question for Chef Keith Snow on mobster sauce. Mobster sauce? I mean lobster sauce. But is there such a thing as mobster sauce? Bring a special guest on real quick to tell us about mobster sauce. I bring you Dr. Sheldon Cooper.
7: Did the chef lose confidence in the dish or himself? (laughs) And look over here. Shrimp in mobster sauce. (laughs) What is mobster sauce? It's obviously a typo. Perhaps.
1: Perhaps this restaurant's now a front for organized crime. (laughs) Overall, we know the mobster sauce contains actual chunks of deceased mobsters. Well, that is definitely not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a a, a dish that the, the person asking the question actually got at Red Lobster. They, and it's a tilapia that has a lobster sauce over it, and it's seasonal, so you can't get it all the time. And guy really likes it and wants to know how to make it himself. with that, hey, Chef, take it away. Hey, Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com and TastyEducation.com.
7: wanted to talk to Sean's question about lobster sauce. Now, lobster sauce, um those of you that have been to Red Lobster and places like that, you often see lobster sauce. And this is... It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting question. Now he's looking, Sean is looking to make this. Now in the restaurant business, this is something that this is kind of an old school thing, lobster sauce. It's definitely, you know, of French influence and normally in the restaurant industry, you're going to be using lobsters themselves. Now I don't know if anybody's checked the price of lobsters, but, um, you know if money doesn't matter then making it from scratch is definitely the way to go and uh the method is somewhat similar to a lot of different kind of sauce making adventures where you're cooking mirepoix you know celery carrots and onions with in this case um lobster bodies now you would take your lobster and and cut it up it's kind of difficult to explain it on on uh on the show here but um in order to make a good lobster stock you need lobster bodies you need claws shells all that stuff because that's where the lobster flavor comes from and by the way it's great to have the lobster meat in there now this can be you know like i said a fairly pricey adventure that's the way we would do it in the restaurant industry you know the thing gets creamed out there's some alcohol added usually something like sherry and maybe finish with some fresh tarragon And you've got a sauce that um, usually has a pinkish hue to it. Sometimes we would add some uh, saffron to that. And that is, so it's creamy. It's got little chunks of lobster. It's a pretty, you know, sexy thing. Now, the shortcut, which I think most of you will appreciate, um, I know I do, is looking for a product by Better Than Bouillon. And, uh, you can generally find that on Amazon. Jack, I think, has a link for that. He can put in the show notes for everybody to check that out. And it's definitely worth having. You can find it in some stores, but it's not one of their most popular products. This company has a lot of different, um, bases, as we would call them, coming from the restaurant industry. Um, some restaurants, you know, the really fine ones, we used to make you know, lobster sauces of different types and, you know, bisques and that kind of thing. But again, you you really need to have a a steady supply of lobsters coming in the door from a good, reliable seafood vendor in order to be making that sauce properly. What usually happens in the restaurant industry is they use things called bases. And the base is um, a thick paste made up of all the things that you would need to make a lobster sauce. Good ones tend to have a little bit of fennel in them, and then they're cooked down, so most of the liquid is gone. And then you use that to sort of uh, liven up a sauce. Now, to use that stuff, you can buy this Better Than Bouillon right off of Amazon, and uh, you can make yourself a, a nifty little sauce. Now, you do benefit greatly by having some fish stock when you make that. Now, any, if you buy fish at a supermarket or a fish store, you can easily just ask the dude behind the counter or dudette, whatever the case may be. Can I get some, uh, fish bodies? I want to make a stock. Things like fish heads, carcasses, those all make good fish stock. So you pop a couple of those, whatever bones you can get, or maybe they've got, you know, lobster tails and shells, shrimp shells will work. Um, a little bit of clam juice, eh, it'll work. Is not the greatest choice, but um, you can also buy some seafood stock in cans as well. You know, that's definitely uh, doable. I mean, you, in this equation, you are using a, um, you know, prepared product in this lobster base from Better Than Bouillon anyway. But what you're looking for is a liquid that has a variety of um Seasonings in it, flavorings in it, um, from vegetable ingredients like celery, carrot, onion, a little bit of fennel, you know, some fresh fennel goes great in there. Um, some fish bodies and bones and heads. You cook all this down and then you'll have a flavored liquid. You reduce that even some more. You get down to, let's say, you know, a couple of cups of this highly flavored seafood, um, stock or sometimes it, you'll see it called a fume which is it's a little finer but in this case you get this liquid in a skillet and then you're going to whisk in some of your lobster base out of the jar and you have to be careful because the stuff tends to be a little salty so you don't want to put that stuff in um, in the beginning and then reduce it a bunch of times because you'll wind up with too much salt so that's what you need to watch so you um cook down your seafood stock, whisk in some of your lobster base. And if you have some lobster meat, you know, that's the place to add it. A little bit of cream goes in, a little bit of sherry, maybe some um, tarragon or even some fennel fronds, which is the little um, part, uh, top of the fennel. That would make a great little lobster sauce to put on, you know, anything over shrimp, over fish. So hopefully, Sean, that gives you some idea how to make this. It is, you know, a little bit complicated. And again, the ideal method is to buy yourself some fresh lobsters and, um, you know, cut them up, get the meat out, use the shells and the bodies to make it from scratch. But that's not um, going to be all that uh, viable for everybody. I know uh, I'll be heading to Cape Cod soon and uh, we've got some contacts up there and there's fish stores where we can get um, lobsters. Pretty cheap, not the popular fish stores, but sort of the ones down the back road where they don't charge an arm and a leg. Also, we know fishermen that come in, they have small boats with lobster pots, and um, there's usually trading going on and this and that, but able to get great seafood up there at reasonable prices. But for the rest of you, maybe this will help. I hope everybody has a great weekend. I want to encourage you all to visit tastyeducation.com and check out the courses I produce there. And as always, Jack, thank you, and everyone, take care.
1: So I wanted to throw a little quick segment in here on what we think of as waste in cooking and in food and and how that's really a mistake, uh, including things that we hunt and gather. So Erica did a whole thing on fats. Here's Chef Keith Snow is talking to us uh, about making something that's pretty exquisite like lobster sauce. But the reality is a lot of these things are gathered from what people think of as waste. So let's talk real quick about fat. So like one of the thing I things I never let go to waste when I shoot a deer is tallow. And these deer that I shoot here in Texas are nothing like the deer that I shot in Pennsylvania. The deer that I used to shoot in Pennsylvania, you know, you'd skin a deer and you gotta hang it hanging up like first and just on the hams, on the on the on the butt, you know, there'd be uh, a quarter inch to sometimes up to almost an inch of hard tallow, because those northern deer put so much fat on in the summer to deal with the coming cold winter. We're here in Texas; deer don't want to have too much fat on them, so they produce less. But yet, a uh, young doe that I shot—she's probably two and a half year old doe—if that about one hundred and ten pounds live weight—I uh, was able to get a full quart of tallow, and I think I gave a, a pint or a half pint away to my buddy David. You know, and it's a fantastic cooking fat. So, I mean, that's one way to look at things like fats is like, are you throwing away things? And then when you think of something like a lobster sauce, well, what Chef told you is that this generally is like, you know, you buy that big lobster and you crack it open, you get the claw meat out and the leg meat out and you, you eat it and then you throw all that stuff away. Basically, that, that stock that uses base to make the lobster sauce comes from what you normally throw away. Uh, With fish stock. You know, you talked about going to your fishmonger or what have you and saying, because sometimes you'll, you know, like even some grocery stores, they'll have whole fish sitting there, but they'll fillet it for you. And a lot of times, if you talk to them, they might not have it for you right now, but if you say, Do you get people to come in and have to fillet those fish? And they'll say, Yeah, well, if I come in on Friday, can you put that aside for me? And a lot of times they'll do it. And that head and that, that kind of, you know, the bone body with the little bits of meat on it, that makes an awesome so- stock or sauce or fish soup. There's actually a thing called fish head soup, and there's many varieties of that, and that's taking that otherwise thrown away thing and putting it to use. And that can be done with you guys at fish. You, know, you go out there and you fillet, you know, a, a dozen fish that you bring in, And you look at, and like half the weight of the fish is in the head. And I'm not Andrew Zimmer. I'm not big into eating eyeballs and, you know, brains and stuff like that. But boiled down, they make a good stock. And there is a lot of meat that works its way off of that. And, you know, considering using those things either as a base or building soups on them. I mean, you take five or six fish carcasses. Uh, bigger fish, and you, you, you simmer them down until the meat just flakes off the, whatever's there. You pick out the little bit of meat and set it aside, discard everything else, and you make that stock. And then you chop up some fresh vegetables like some good hot pepper, some ginger, some garlic, some onion, a little bit of tomato, some chili pepper, some sweet pepper, maybe a little snow pea, And you add those at different times. Like your hot pepper, you can add right away. Your garlic and ginger, you can add right away because you want to really turn that into the stock itself. But like your snow pea and stuff, you'd add that at flame out. And you can get creative with that. You can play with that all that you want to. You know, there's a lot of things you can do from there. You can take it a little more to the Thai curry side with some... You know, some some curry seasoning and some coconut milk. You can leave it nice and clear the way that it is and go more of a Mediterranean style, maybe back down the chili pepper, some diced tomatoes. Like, you can do all these creative things with things that people usually throw away. Now, the other side of this is, you know, Chef was talking about restaurants. Well, the reason a restaurant can make its own lobster sauce from a stock is that that restaurant might sell 100 or 200 or 300 lobsters um, this week. And... There's going to be a lot of waste product from that, and they have a lot of it available at one time because you're talking about making something very concentrated in flavor as a a base. So we don't generally operate on that kind of scale, and if you have like a two- or four-person family, you know, you might use three or four fish or something like that, and it might not even leave enough to make a really large stock, or uh, shrimp would be another example. He talked about shrimp shells and heads and things like that. Well, to me, let's say that you go and you, you have the opportunity to buy shrimp at the grocery store and it's shell on. A lot of times, when you're preparation, you'll peel that shrimp before you cook it. I use shrimp skewers on the grill. Uh, I make a little uh, kind of a little Asian themed uh, sauce using a little mirin, uh, some hot sauce, a little bit of uh, hoisin sauce, and some soy sauce, a little Worcestershire, some diced uh, jalapeno, and, uh, and uh, ginger uh and garlic you know and i mix that together and i make a base with that and i'll grill that shrimp over high temperature add a little bit of honey to it so it'll get a little bit of caramelization and brush that shrimp with it at the end well you know i'm gonna make a dozen two dozen of those that's not a lot of shells but what i'll do is i'll take them and i'll put them in a ziploc bag that will be marked seafood waste with a sharpie on it and it goes in the freezer And then every time that I use anything that would work well in a stock, a seafood stock, that has a waste product, I'll put it in that bag until that bag is full. And now I can go in a stock pot and I can make a stock out of it. I do the same thing with chicken. If I'm going to buy chicken thighs and I want to do something with boneless thigh cutlets, I don't buy boneless thigh cutlets. I buy skin on bone-in thighs and I just pull the skin. The skin pulls right off. And then I take a knife and I debone it and I throw that skin and that that that's, that, uh, that bone into a bag. Or if I have my own birds I've processed and I'm going to use it, like, and I, I build that up and I'll use that. So I think if we just think about running our homes that way a little bit more, we'll get in touch with something that we're spoiled in the first world. And we've only been spoiled for a couple hundred years at most, probably more like a hundred. All of these things that are like amazing flavor bombs, These these... Boulia bases and fish stews and lobster sauces and stuff like that. These are all the byproducts of peasant food. This is when people went down to the fishmonger and couldn't afford the fish, but could buy the fish carcasses or beg for them. And they, they learned how to make amazing things out of it. And then chefs throughout history and alchemy, etc., took them and transformed them into these modern-day kind of gourmet things. And that means that they're in our grasp if we'll learn the techniques. So that's just my thoughts on that. Next up, um, this was something somebody sent to me on the media and how media is changing, kind of an Uber for journalists type thing. I'm going to play at least part of the video from YouTube for you, and I'll come back and give you my thoughts on why this is crypto savagery. And it's a bigger deal than most people think it is. Americans' trust in the news media is at an all-time low. But given the choices they're offered, local news is often the source people trust the most. Now there's an app called Fresco that could complicate that. Local news stations around the country are using it to outsource the gathering of news footage to anyone with a smartphone. Ellie Reeve went to Alaska to see how it works.
8: You hear me?
6: Seven,
8: six, five. The Anchorage Police Department are looking for a witness to a shooting. This footage was captured by one of our Fresco team members who was on the scene today.
9: This footage would have normally come from a professional journalist. Instead, it was shot by a retiree with her phone. Fresco is like Uber for journalism. A newsroom puts out a request for coverage of a story, and people in the area accept and take a video of it.
3: They get their
2: credit on, on on the television screen or in the newspaper.
9: It was created by John Meyer, who developed one of the first flashlight apps for the iPhone.
6: The community is getting...
9: Reporters read the voiceover and the anchor reads it as viewers see B-roll captured by Fresco users. A home in Penland Park received a fresh coat this weekend. Fresco says it's being used by 13 news stations across the country and expanding to 38 local newspapers. It's especially appealing to KTBY, which covers the entire state of Alaska.
3: Where the weather is happening. Weather, I'll tell you what, Ellie. Uh Uh-huh. Weather is what people watch the news for. Right. Yes. Especially in Alaska.
9: KTBY has been hailed as the first station fully powered by Fresco. So what does it mean that your station is fully powered by Fresco?
3: That was something that Fresco came up with because we're not fully powered by Fresco. My opinion, I think, I really believe that eventually that's where all news is going.
9: It kind of makes me think of the Steve Martin joke, though. It's like, um, sure, 72 Virgin sounds nice, but after five or six, you're going to want a pro. (laughs) Like, don't people want, you know, professionals to give them the news, the context?
3: Journalists still write the story. See, as far as the visual aspect, the viewing public doesn't need a pro. They don't care about a pro. What is a pro? If you ask the general public,
8: they don't know. They just see something that's pleasing to them. Right now, the fresco events that have been popping up are just like National Cat Day and stuff like that. They want footage of moose around town. Holly Andrews is an esthetician in Wasilla. She says
9: she's made more than $1,500 doing Fresco on the side. Fresco pays users $40 per story. This stands in contrast to the hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars, a freelance video journalist would cost.
8: I went to some bike race event. It was just me and the news crews and then all the people biking. That was kind of awkward. I didn't feel so comfortable with that. I'm not a professional. I felt like if somebody came and tried to do lashes that had never been to school or never been trained... I would be like, what are you doing? Why are you here doing my job? (laughs) Some of the stuff's hard to just sit for a minute and kinda record.
9: Do you ever feel nervous trying to interview a politician?
8: Yeah, there was one time where they were like, we want you to go into his office and ask all these like serious questions about the state. And I wasn't sure I wanted to go into an office and grill a politician. That seemed a little bit on the more serious side.
9: Scott Sinners came to the station seven years ago and says he brought it into the digital age. He led the partnership with Fresco.
7: Using Fresco, we were able to cut cost, and so what was once a $3,000 average cost now comes down
5: to less than $200. Have you laid
9: people off because you're able to use Fresco?
7: Absolutely not. Oh. Absolutely not. Moving forward, there's no requirement for the same amount of people that, that we had previously.
9: You just won't rehire some people who correct, have left. Correct,
7: correct, correct. That's a fair statement.
9: And does Fresco play into that? Absolutely. This is from the Oso landslide. Forty-two or forty-three people were killed. There's no room for screwing that up. I mean, it's too sensitive of a story. It's just too heavy. Carolyn Hall worked for years as a photojournalist in TV news, including at two stations in Anchorage. A lot of the people we talk to have said, well, these people are just getting us B-roll, we do voiceover over it, we're doing the real reporting, they're just getting us something to put on the screen. How can they do the real reporting if they're not on scene? They don't know how chaotic or not chaotic a scene is. I mean, there's so much flavor that is missed when someone is is reporting from the studio. Fresco CEO John Meyer rejected the idea that the app would hurt the quality of journalism. He told Vice News that Fresco videos are vetted and that reporting is done in the newsroom. Close to half of U.S. adults turn to local TV as their primary news source, even for national news, like presidential elections. America has determined its 45th 45th president of the United States of America in Donald Trump. And while print revenue is declining, TV revenue is holding steady. In 2014, local newspaper staffs declined by 10%, while local TV staffs grew by 1%. Do you lose anything from not sending out a professional photojournalist?
5: Do I lose anything from not spending out, sending out a professional journalist?
4: Um, I absolutely feel strongly that we have uh, gained a whole nother
5: resource. So, you know, at this time, no, I don't. It's
9: sad to think that in the future we could have an even less informed society. The future of journalism is just really, it's too important to screw around with, I think.
1: Okay, what's going on here is actually massive crypto savagery. So, so for those that maybe haven't heard that term before, aren't familiar with Vin, Vin Armani who coined it, let me explain the basics of what crypto savagery is. So crypto means to be hidden, and savagery means to be different. And the savages actually are not the barbarians that we think of that are, you know, dragging their knuckles and drooling. The savages of the world are actually the ones that are already moving to the next level. They're, they're seen as savages by the people in power because they represent change and change represents a change to all things, including who's in power and who's in control. So you have hidden change and there are people who are part of that hidden change, who are already engaged at what's going to happen next before everybody accepts it, it's in plain view anybody can see it, but because people are blinded by normalcy bias, perception bias, and confirmation bias, it's effectively cryptographed from them. They can't see. Even though it's right there, right in front of the face like the people reporting on and talking about this, they can't see what's really happening here. Modern media, and I specifically mean the news at this point, is literally that figurative person that deserves to die. Somebody that's, you know, massacred puppies or something. Um, Trying to commit suicide with a hammer. Smack. Damn, it didn't work. And then smack, and he knocks himself out and wakes up. Oh, shit, i got to try it again. Right? That's... That's the modern media. That's CNN has taken the lead. They've got a big-ass hammer, and they're pounding their head. Uh, somebody posted a meme, when I said this on Facebook, and had a guy holding a spike to his head with a hammer. That might get the job done a little faster. And uh, that's, that's modern media right now. At the same time, their trust factor is at an all-time low. And it, uh, it's easy to kick CNN because they're so blatant with it right now because they're being sensational because they're dying. And they know they're dying. But people like Fox News, who are more of the right-wing side, they're terminally ill, too. They're just not in touch with the fact that they're terminally ill yet. They're in the denial stage, right? I think CNN is in, like, I don't know, the bargaining stage or something. Like, maybe if we can just do something so wild, we'll be what we used to be again, what have you. But they're all going through those five stages of grief. Now, this individual app may not be the thing that completely does this yet. All of these apps come in stages. If you're an iPhone user or an Android user, and you have been for a long time, like since apps first became a thing, you know that there were apps to find, let's say a place to eat, that no one uses anymore because there's better ones now. There used to be one called Urban Spoon. I'm sure it's still around, but I don't use it anymore. It almost worked like a slot machine. Like you set the parameters of what you wanted, you spun it, and it gave you a bunch of different places you could eat based on how much you wanted to pay, what kind of food you wanted, where they were. Um, you know, Yelp is a fra- is really not what it used to be. I just saw a South Park uh, episode making fun of that last night. It was pretty funny. Uh, but you're seeing these apps replace apps replace apps as they get better and more sophisticated. So why don't you think someone's going to come up with an app that will make this even better? But maybe not so much for the people using it. So you hear the guy, well, yeah, we're not laying people off because of it. And my response to that is yet. And then the lady interviewing him says, well, um, but you're not not hiring more, right? Well, that means you're allowing headcount to be cut by atrophy. I mean, there's a rule in business. If you're not growing, you're dying. That's a hard rule. There's no... Once you start into a decline in in an industry or a business, there is only one eventual thing. You almost never see a business begin a decline, a true systemic decline, and then rebound. Have you seen any black and white TVs lately? You know, and hipsters might be rolling around with some 45 records or some cassette tapes, but in the end, those industries are dead, and we know they're dead. A niche product does not make an industry. It makes a niche product. So how does this affect news? I think what we're seeing is the, is the true beginning. I think people have already said it's the age of, but no, this is just the beginning of the rise of the citizen journalist. If you think about the technology that's available to people now, why can you use a housewife to go get you B-roll of a flood? There's only one reason Okay? There's only one real reason you can do that. And it's because her freaking $800 iPhone that she probably got for 200 bucks as a trade-in shoots better quality video than a $50,000 camera from 15 years ago. That's why. Now, she still has to know what she's doing to get the shots right and all, but there's so many ways to learn that. And If you have enough people doing it, somebody gets the shot right. And these journalists, they're like, well, we still do the news. And only real journalists can do the news. Blah, blah, blah. Bullshit! You people are controlled in order You hear the entire flavor of this, uh, this this segment. Most Americans mostly trust and rely on their local news stations to get their news even... Local news is a myth! They might put in a few of these little homespun stories and shit, but it's all bullshit. Everyone's seen the Conan O'Brien stuff where they show a hundred different local affiliates saying the exact same words. Don't worry, be happy. Don't, don't make me play it, right? Don't make me play it. We've all seen it. It was done over and over and over again to make a point. They're all controlled. There's about six companies that control 95% of the media that's consumed in America. That's a real thing. I didn't make that up. But it's going to end. Specifically when it comes to news and current events and things like that. And the gatekeepers are trying to control it. That's why governments list things like press passes and you have to be a credentialed media and shit like that. But in the end, if you want the real truth about something, the one thing that was right in here, you want someone that actually went to the place and looked at it and saw it and experienced it for themselves, telling you not some agenda. And in fact, you're okay with an agenda. But you know what? Do this for me. Let five people with five different agendas go there and produce media for me. Let me consume it all. See what the most consistent things are between the five and derive my own conclusion. And, and what I see happening, what I see happening is an incredible shift to where we're gonna have basically decentralized media platforms everywhere and these networks are going to die. Do you know how they're gonna do you know how you know they're going to die? Because when you go to like some crappy website that's some bullshit website designed to sell you like really shitty uh, supplements and it's just a gimmick and they write a bunch of health articles and shit like that, but it's all crap, regurgitated crap. This is how you know CNN and Fox News and MSNBC, the Weather Channel, and all of these things we think of as media are on the way to their deathbed. This is how you know it. They run the same advertisements. Have you ever noticed that they run the same garbage advertisements? You go to... This is CNN, right? You know, James Earl Jones or whatever. And it's like, this is this mega corporation that was built in the beginnings of the cable industry. When like one in ten people even had cable television. You went to your friend's house because he had cable and you didn't. Back then, CNN came out with an idea. We'll do the news 24-7 and people laughed at them. And they built an empire. And now their website runs the same crappy scam advertisements to make a buck or two that some adver- that some website, some scammer in Singapore put together to sell you freaking vitamin C and tell you it's going to save your life? They have the same half-naked people, the same you-won't-believe-what-honey-boo-boo-looks-like. They have that shit on these websites. You know they're dying. They can't find an online revenue model because... They're not important anymore. And they haven't even fully been replaced yet. But I think we'll see social networks that are decentralized news that will allow people to basically tune in to feeds that will customize information that they want to know about. And I believe you'll actually see these become things like what Steemit wants to be but can't be yet because it's too complicated. People can't figure it out, it's too much trouble. You'll have situations where the people using the network are paying the people, bringing them in the information based on their own individual perceived value, and then it is game over. You are dead. You are gone. CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, CBS, ABC, they're gone. There'll be a place for entertainment and really great actors and actresses and writers. You know, There's a lot of money there. And that probably has more staying power than things like the news and the weather. But you hear the guy, people watch news for the weather, that's what they watch the news for. No, asshole, we have an app for that now. We don't need you for the weather. That's what people used to stay up and watch the news for. You're right. crypto savagery, man. Don't you get it? He doesn't even understand that that's been replaced. I remember that my grandparents would not go to bed without watching the late broadcasts of the news, depending on where you live in the country, it's 9 or 10 o'clock, some places maybe 11 o'clock. They would stay up because something might have happened between a 6 o'clock news and a 10 o'clock news. And the weather might have changed, and i got to know what's going to happen tomorrow. And they would sit there in front of that TV set, and they would wait for the news. And what do you do now if you want to know what the weather's going to be? You look at it. And what's the most accurate component to the weather channels app? The and this is why they've screwed with it and they don't give you all the information they used to. The radar and the information from people using the app saying it's raining here now, it's lightning in here now. I saw so, there's gonna be apps that are just gonna tie into the national radar services. It probably already is. They're gonna have such a social media type of activity on them. Do you know in Back to the Future, the one where they went into the future, like Return to the Future, whatever it was, um, Part 2, where they go forward in time, and he's looking at a newspaper and it says it will start raining in 10 minutes. Basically, the Weather Channel app does that now, but they're going to build apps that are better at that predictivity because more people will use them, and they are enabling these technologies and making them go faster by using them. By using this app, these local media channels are actually accelerating their own demise and they don't even know it. Because sure, right now what these people do is get 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks to shoot some B-roll. But what's going to happen when this housewife figures out, "Hey, I could be live streaming this shit to YouTube?" By pushing this button instead of this button? And it would be my content instead of their content? And I can go buy a little microphone and just say what I'm seeing and put it up, and people will trust me more than them because I'm a housewife that's actually here? Yeah. Yeah. You blend that with something like Patreon, where the people that actually believe in what you're doing and don't want you to go away. So yeah, I'll pay a buck or two a month for that person to be able to keep doing this. And they build up 100,000 followers and 10%. 10,000 followers say, I'll give you a buck a month. Crypto savagery. Crypto savagery. The world is changing. There's phenomenal opportunities in this shift. And these platforms that we think of as revolutionary and disruptive, like Patreon, like this application, right? like steam it like bitcoin gen 1 this is gen 1 of disruption which means it's gen 1 of opportunities but we need to embrace these now use them and harness them because that's when gen 2 gen 3 gen 4 comes out and they're still trying to figure out what gen 1 is they'll already be dinosaurs the flesh will be already rotting from the bones The fossils will already be forming. And they'll still be saying, well, they'll never replace us. Those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. And these people are going to repeat the same history that's always played out over and over. Those that do not adapt to new technologies and think that they themselves are so important that they are immune from these technologies, or these technologies can only benefit them even when they don't change the way they're doing things. Are going to end up dinosaur fossils. My thoughts on that. All right, with that, if you enjoyed today's show and you want to support us so that we're always here and we never go away, and you can always come to us to get this information like this great expert council show today, one way you can do that. Is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T S P A Z.com. And today I have a product for you that I've brought to you before, but this is a product that shows the free market over government, i.e., agorism. Not so long ago, your federal government decided they were going to make the planet safer by changing gas cans. And one of the things they did was take away any kind of a vent in that gas can, because gee, somebody might leave it open, Ugh. and then they would vent gas fumes into the atmosphere, which would be really bad. So they took the vent away, and they put these stupid nozzles on them. And now, and sure, it, the gas can sits there in your garage until the weekend when you need to fill your 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 uh, lawnmower, right? Uh, and it doesn't doesn't vent any fumes. But the day you got to fill your lawnmower up, you spill way more gas and vent way more fumes than that vent would have ever caused. But they took it away, and and you can't make them anymore. You can't make those gas cans. You can make the vents. And if you have a drill and a gas can, you can drill a hole in your gas can, you can pop the vent in, and voila, when you pour your gas, the freaking can can breathe now, and the gas can flow and get into your tractor or your car or your lawnmower or what have you. Got it? So... These things are awesome, and they're not expensive. Um, this is a package I have of 25 of them, and they cost $11.48. So they're less than 50 cents apiece. And I personally do feel this is a giant middle finger to the federal government. You've ruined my product, but with a little DIY, I can fix it. You should check out the review on it, but I think that's really what this is. This is agorism. And I bet these things started getting made the day that they changed the gas cans. Now, I have a video in my review for you from a, a, a couple guys called Dual Survivalists, and uh, it's called How to Fix a Gas Can. It's a pretty old video, but it basically shows how to, how to, how to do this, except they use a tire uh, stem, so like a little valve stem for a tire. They use one of those and a little piece of and wire to fish it through and all. You can watch that, but instead of doing that, these, these, valve stem, these uh, valves that are made for gas cans actually work a lot better. Because the problem with doing the tire valve stems is eventually the gas fumes eat that rubber and they have to be replaced, and they cost more than the proper product in the first place. I have found the best ones available on the market that I know of today. There's a lot of other ones. People buy them, they use them, they're happy with them. next thing they start popping out, these don't, they stay put. Again, this is a middle finger to the government. You've ruined a product, but the free market has corrected it. And uh, I really recommend that you check them out if you store gas. I do recommend you store gas, and what I recommend is that you store uh, at least uh, 60 gallons of gas. That's what I because most people have uh, two vehicles. That's 30 gallons per vehicle. That's usually at least a full tank and then some. You keep your vehicle topped up. I don't fill my tank when it gets to like you know L or E. What, what the hell is L E? Right? I feel like if I'm driving by a gas station, it's easy to stop and I'm at three quarters. I pull in and fill up. Uh, and all you do is take your cans. You write 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way up to 12 on them. 5 times 12 is 60. And 1 is January, 2 is February, 3 is March. Got it. And each month, like so that today, is, this is July. So sometime during July, you go out and get can number 7, dump it into your vehicle because it will actually work because you got a valve in it. And then put it in your trunk or the back of your truck or whatever. Next time you go to the gas station to fill up, take it with you. Fill it up, bring it back, stick it back in line. Keep doing that. Your gas is never more than a year old. You use these things, you don't spill your gas when you pour it into your vehicle or your tractor or whatever it is. Really, really simple. I have another cool way to get gas out of your can that will be coming to you next week. As I said, gas out of your can. With that, time for the uh, song of the day. This song is, uh, well, you know, when it was sent to me, uh, one of the things that John Adams said in it was that two of his favorite movies of all time that came out in 1980 had this song in it and uh, could I guess which one? And then he went and gave me the answer. Well, the thing was I knew one of them. It's Blues Brothers. And the other one was Forbidden Zone, which I had completely forgotten about that movie. But this song is actually from uh, 1931, and it's called Minnie the Moocher. Minnie the Moocher. And it's by Cam Calloway. And I have some interesting little tidbits on this. Here's um, a, little, a, few, a few things from Song Facts on it. Many the Moocher is riddled with jive slang. Most white listeners of the time, again, this is 1931, didn't understand. So although it's quite a sordid tale, the song was not censored and reached a very wide audience, selling more than a million copies. Calloway became an authority on this jive and was highly enthusiastic about the subject. In 1944, he published a dictionary of the Harlem uh, Patios called The New Cab Calloway Hipster Dictionary Language of Jibe. The original hipsters were not the type of people we have and we call hipsters today, by the way. So anyway, I think that's interesting and I think that's a a constant in music. If you listen to Bob Dylan's music, especially his earlier stuff, there's a lot of stuff in there that signifies things that weren't really okay with the mainstream to be in music at the time. If you knew what they were, the song made sense. If you didn't know what they were, the song still seemed to make sense, but you didn't know what it was really about. You know, I mean, uh, Don McLean's American Pie has stuff like it. The bird flew off to a fallout shelter. It's a guy from the birds going to drug rehab because that's what they called it. So if you didn't know that, it just sounds like some weird line. On weird lines, so here we're back to... um, uh song facts again. The thing that made this song so special to audience was the call and response scat battle that Calloway used to engage them in when performing this song at the Cotton Club and other famous jazz night clubs in Chicago. He would start off with uh he de hi de hi de ho, right? Or in simple variations which the audience could repeat back easily. But then his scats would get steadily more difficult until finally he would give them something like skeedle abuka Didabika bika skeedle baka gickly wop to respond to leaving most people far behind in fits of laughter. This form of scatting became Callaway's trademark. He wrote many more songs in a similar vein including The Heidi Ho, Miracle Man, and you got a Heidi Ho. Uh, yeah, so this music sounds like the 1930s, and it is a fun song, and it's a good song for a Friday, and uh, it does teach us some lessons about music and how musicians have always been kind of on the cutting edge of where society was headed, and had a way to communicate with people who were already there, and avoid the confrontations with the people that wanted to hold it back. Sounds like crypto savagery to me and with that this has been jack spirko with another edition of the survival podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't
7: about Minnie the Moocher. She was a low-down huge She was the roughest toughest, frail Minnie had a heart as big as a whale Heidi 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 Ho
0: Heidi Heidi Heidi
1: you win